Brother Cyril Tennant has asked that we read together from Hosea chapter 3. And we turn back, brethren and sisters, into chapter 2 to start with. The message which began in verse 2 of chapter 2 does in fact conclude at the end of chapter 2. And you remember the uh, scheme, the design of the book is that we have a series of messages, each of which starts at some point in God's purpose and goes right out to the kingdom of God. And so verses 22 and 23 take us into the kingdom of God. But before that, you remember, we have the word therefore used three times in this chapter. Uh, and each time it is used, it marks the stage of God's dealing with his people. First of all, Hosea's dealing with Gomer. Secondly, God's dealing with Israel. And thirdly, God's dealing with ourselves. And it is in the application to ourselves that we are most concerned right the way through the book of Hosea. Now, because of this, it will be difficult to go through the whole of the book of Hosea expositionally. That could be done, but I think the most important thing is that we do pause and meditate upon the points which are of special application to ourselves, and that does take time. We have to create an atmosphere, we have to absorb the word, and in doing that, we have to spend a little time uh, to accomplish it. We're looking now at verse 14, the final of the stages. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. The margin you'll, you'll notice says, speak to her heart. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. So we have the first, therefore, in verse 6, where God makes it difficult for Israel to do the wrong thing. He makes it difficult for us to do the wrong things. We have the, therefore, in verse 9, where God then takes away the blessings because the first warning is not heeded. And we have now the third, therefore, in verse 14, where we have a wilderness of experience. This was a wilderness of experience first for Gomer, who would be expelled from the home of Hosea because of the way that she lived. She would then find herself alone, dreadfully alone, as we will see when we come into chapter 3. For Israel, this meant a long captivity. Not just a captivity of 70 years, but the breaking up of the nation of Israel later and their dispersal throughout the lands of the world the wilderness of her experience. But it was to be in this wilderness of experience which God would speak to her heart. It was to be in tribulation, and from tribulation that a new nation was to be born. It was to be from tribulation that the remnant would come forth, and ultimately the Gentiles too would be joined. Now in verse 15 you will notice, I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Remember what we said about Hosea and his use of words and the meanings of names? Well, we pause to take note of Achor, which means troubling. You remember after the defeat at Ai, because a family had been disobedient in matters with regard to Jericho, having taken 
Babylonian garments and a goodly uh, a wedge of gold and goodly Babylonian garments, how that God searched out that family and they were ultimately stoned to death. The place, the valley of Achor, the valley of troubling is what it means. But notice what he says in verse 15, the valley of troubling shall be a door of hope. Tribulation is itself to become a doorway to better things. And that, of course, is the situation in our own experience. It is through tribulation that the new man is born. And whenever we are called upon to suffer some particular form of tribulation, and that comes to us each in different ways, it may come in troubles and problems amongst our children. It may come in problems about our parents. It may come just as we grow older ourselves and feel the loneliness of old age. But whatever it is, that tribulation will be the anvil upon which our characters will be formed. That tribulation will become the doorway of hope which will lead to better things if, if we understand the therefores in this chapter and we listen to what God is saying to us. You will notice now from verse 16 onwards we move into the kingdom of God era because the blessings of the kingdom are spoken of here. It shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi. Thou shalt not call me Baali. In other words, husband, not master. I will take away the names of the masters out of her mouth. And moving down further, we have, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field. Notice how in verse 18, we can't develop this, but in verse 18, the curse is removed from the earth, described so fully in Isaiah and later by the, by the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Romans. The curse taken from the earth and the blessings of God coming through the world to mankind. And verse 18, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercy. Notice, this is a new marriage. We said in verse 2 of this chapter that Gomer's behavior had broken the marriage. But there is a promise here at the end of this chapter that God will be reunited with Israel, but not upon the basis of the old covenant. This is a new marriage with a new bride. This is a bringing together of the sons of the living God, the end of verse 10, chapter 1. I will betroth thee unto me this time forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. It is from those qualities that the new Israel will be born. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Verse 21, It shall come to pass, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. The earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. There is a full cycle in that verse. Jezreel meaning sowing, and we have the seed sown. We have God noting that, hearing of the sowing, and of course, sending the rain to cause the harvest to come. The earth will hear the corn, the corn, and the wine, and so on, all responding to the sowing of Jezreel. And in verse 23, I will sow her unto me in the earth, 
and I will have mercy upon her that did not have mercy. Now notice how the three names of the children are all used in verses 22 and 23. Jezreel in the sowing, I will have mercy upon her that did not have mercy. And those who were not a people shall become a people. In other words, lo ru'ama becomes ru'ama, lo army becomes army. And we have, in actual fact, the establishment of the kingdom of God at the end of that little cycle. Now, there's a hint at the end of that chapter that everything is going to be well for the bride ultimately. And we may wonder how this can possibly be when Israel is, in fact, so wicked. How can God handle Israel and restore her once again to this situation? Well, in chapter 3, we come to a new cycle, a very short cycle, but it picks up this business of God's relationship with Israel and shows to us the possibility of Israel being reconciled. And then it leads on again right into the kingdom of God in verse 5, where it doesn't give us very much detail. So chapter 3 is a little uh, series all by itself. A most important one, and it is, I think, upon this chapter that the book really pivots. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet. What burden there is in those two words, go yet. It was though God is saying to Hosea, You have suffered a great deal so far, but you haven't finished yet. There is more that has to be worked out in the acted parable, the real life acted parable of your own domestic situation. Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress according to the Lord. Now we may again be a little horrified by this verse, and we may say to ourselves, is God here really commanding Hosea to go out and find another adulterous person to become his wife? Well, as we examined the first occurrence of this, let us do so with the second occurrence. Notice the parallel in the end of the verse. According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel. God did not seek another nation. He sought Israel. He sought to redeem Israel. And Gomer was not to seek another wife. He was, in fact, to go out and find Gomer and to bring her back. Now, the remarkable thing about this is that in this verse, Hosea is only given one commandment. He is not told to go out and find Gomer. He is not told to bring her back. He is not told to reinstate her. He is simply told to love her. And as a natural consequence of loving Gomer, all the rest which is in this chapter follows. Now put yourself for a moment in the place of Hosea. His wife has wantonly gone in search of other husbands. He has made it difficult for her to do so. And yet despite that, she is still gone. He has taken away the blessings of the home of married life. Despite that, she has still gone. He has had to disassociate himself from her 
and she has gone away completely. There has been this separation because of what she has done and because she has determined to live in that way. And Hosea is told by God to love that woman. And we are told that he bought her for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer and a half of barley. 15 pieces of silver, half the price one would pay for a slave. A homer and a half of barley, about a day's ration for a slave. So a little over half the price of a slave was the price which was demanded for Gomer. We can imagine and see through the, <clears throat> the lines here what the real situation was. Sin has by this time done its worst. Gomer, by choosing the way of life she has chosen, has now become little more than a gutter girl. She is unwanted, unloved. She can now be purchased in the slave market for a little over half price. That is the kind of person she is. Imagine the feelings of Hosea when he goes down and sees his former wife in this situation. Unlovely, unlovable, unattractive, unwanted by anyone, and available for a paltry price. And he has been commended by God to love her. We may ask ourselves how Hosea could possibly do this. And I think the answer is in the words, love a woman according to the love of the Lord for Israel. In other words, this was not a human love. It was a divine love. It is that love which is spoken of in the New Testament and where the, uh, the expression is crystallized in the usage of the word agape. That love which flows from God which is so different from the love of man. The love of man requires some object to call it forth. A man must see something which excites his passions, and that in itself calls forth his love. It creates his love. Without it, he is himself loveless. We all know the change that comes over a young man when uh, he falls in love with a young lady for the first time, how his shoes become shiny and clean, and his colors are always changed and become fresh, and how he himself walks with a spring. He's a different man altogether. Something has been born in that man, but it is born in him because he is responding to something outside. And that is not how God loves. God is love. It is his nature. It is his part of his very being to love that which is unlovely and unlovable and to create something out of nothing. And so we find Hosea here, according to the love of God, and therefore in this live parable, acting out God's love for Israel, doing something which would not be humanly possible, to go out and to find his wife and to buy her back. Now, shall we, for a moment, just turn back into Deuteronomy 24. And incidentally, this chapter does not 
does not, underline, teach divorce. The law of Moses did not teach divorce. This particular chapter should be read if a man has taken a wife and married her, and if it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and if he writes her a bill of divorce and she goes out, and if she marries another man, then he can't take her back. In other words, it is not a chapter saying, you must give your wife a bill of divorce and send her away. The chapter is really saying, if you do give her a bill of divorce, if she does marry somebody else, then you can't take her back. Now, the reason why we say it should be if there is firstly because that is the text, but secondly because we are shown how to understand this chapter in Jeremiah chapter 3. Shall we go to Jeremiah chapter 3? He picks up here the, the real words of uh, Deuteronomy 24. They say... If a man put away his wife and she go from him. Notice it is if a man put away his wife and she go from him. And if she becomes another man's, she shall not return to him again. So God through Jeremiah picks up this teaching from Deuteronomy. But he says, you have come back to me. You've played the harlot, yet you return to me. And we shall see in Hosea how this is made possible. But you'll notice how he talks about her having committed adultery, which shows, in fact, that in Deuteronomy 24, the uncleanness spoken of is not just some premarital offence. It refers to all sexual sins, uh, and in this particular case is referred to as having commit, committed adultery. And although this happened to Israel, Judah herself did not, he did not take the warning, but followed the same pattern. Now I come back into Hosea chapter 3. Here we have the situation then where Gomer has in fact gone away. She has in fact become associated with another husband, in fact several of them. And yet we find that Hosea is commanded to go and to love her again. But he is to do it in accordance with the love of God. In other words, this is no normal uh, remarriage of a person. This is an indication that God is about to do something which man is unable to do. God is able to remarry Israel, whereas man is not able to remarry a wife who has gone astray and married another husband. And notice now how this is brought about. He bought her for 15 pieces of silver, for a homer and a half of barley, and said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days, thou shalt not play the harlot, thou shalt not be for another man, and so will I also be for thee. And so having been given this command to love, he starts to work. And following the command to love, there follows his searching for Gomer, follows the buying back of Gomer, and taking her back home. We might just, as a sideline here, which is more important to our souls, remember 
that we who were without strength and without hope, we who were also unlovely and unlovable, were purchased not by the paltry price of 15 pieces of silver, but by the precious blood of the only begotten Son of God. He has bought us back. But notice now what follows that buying back. Verse 3. Thou shalt abide for me many days, thou shalt not play the harlot, thou shalt not be for another man, and so will I also be for thee. Gomer was not reinstated as a full wife immediately. She was taken home, and there was this long period of trial, of testing, to see that she was, in fact, and would, in fact, remain faithful to him. And this has been the situation with Israel, verse 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Although God has bought Israel back, although he has paid the price in his only begotten son, Israel is not yet united with God but is at this moment without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Ephraim is without both false and true gods. Israel is in this remarkable situation that at the moment she is not an idol worshipper, but she does not have a god to worship in the full sense. She is in this period of testing and trial. Now, it seems to me there is a very good guide here as to how we should treat brethren and sisters who have gone astray and who wish to come back and to be refellowshipped. And I'm not thinking just of the problem of uh, marriage, divorce, and so on, which is a, a very difficult situation. I'm speaking now of people wishing to come back and be refellowshipped. I believe that we should follow this pattern which is given to us here by Hosea. We should say to the person concerned after a suitable interview, all right, come into our midst, attend our meetings, come to our Bible classes, our lectures, our breaking of bread, but don't break bread with us yet. We will wait and see whether your attitude of mind is really sincere, whether you really are serious. And we wait and see how it works out. And if after several months we find that they have in fact come back into the truth in a full-blooded way, then we receive them back into fellowship. But if they don't, if they don't attend the meetings regularly, if they don't show fruits, meet for repentance, we do not extend the right hand of fellowship to them again. And I think here in this chapter we have a very good guide as to how we should do this. And verse 5 goes on to say, Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. We now pass into chapter 4. With the end of chapter 3 we finish the real life parable. There is no mention again of Gomer, no mention again of the marriage of Gomer to Hosea. And yet, 
all the way behind what follows in this uh, short prophecy, we shall see that that message is there. For example, turn to chapter 11. And it is essential that we see Gomer and Hosea and that relationship behind the message in order to fill out the detail and to get the, the, feel, the full feeling of the prophet's message. Verse 8. Here is God saying, How shall he put Israel apart? How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I set thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me, and my repentings are kindled together. There we have God perplexed and troubled. How can he put off Israel? But behind that verse 8, we can see the prophet's own anguish. How could he turn Gomer out away from home, the one whom he had loved, the one who had been perfect when first he married her? And we see Hosea's own anguish in that verse 8, and it gives color to the message which God has for Israel. But of course, we'll come to that a little later. We're now looking at chapter 4. This isn't a section complete in itself. The sections I mark off by when we come to the next picture of the kingdom of God. But we'll take this chapter as it is and notice how it begins. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. What a dreadful thing to be in controversy with God. What a dreadful thing to be on the wrong side of a debate with God. And yet, you know, when you look carefully at this verse, there is hope. As indeed there is all the way through the book of Hosea. It is a book of serious judgment. It is a book of recompense. But it is always a book which has hope, in which God is reaching out to the one who is a sinner that he might be saved. And that word controversy is the same word that we have in verse 2 of chapter 2. Plead with your mother, plead. That's the word controversy. Plead with your mother, plead. And so the Lord hath a pleading. The Lord hath a pleading with the children of Israel. He is, through this affliction through this trouble in which they're going to find themselves. They're going to plead with the people as we took in the margin for um, the door of hope. You remember in verse 14 speak comfortably to her heart uh, will plead with Israel. The Lord hath a controversy. He hath a pleading with his people. And so this is not just cold retributive judgment it is God seeking a remedy to help his people but what a dreadful people they have become they lack knowledge verse 1 because there is no truth there is no mercy there is no knowledge of God in the land You notice the words mercy and truth. 
linked up with knowledge. And I think what we're being told here in this first verse, that a real knowledge of God is a real knowledge and understanding of God's truth and mercy. You remember John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that grace and truth become an analysis of the glory of God. They also become an analysis of knowledge, of understanding. To understand God, we must understand grace and truth. And we must understand this amazing marriage of grace and truth, which is exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ. As so far as we are concerned, ecclesially, when we have problems, we tend to divide ourselves into two groups. The one group which would like to show mercy, and the other group which would like to show truth. And one group will say, we ought to be merciful and kind to this person, and we ought to be forgiving to this person. And the other group will say, but we ought to maintain the standards of the truth. And so we have the two sections here, which are parts of God's character, which become parts of a controversial issue, truth and mercy. And we divide ourselves over the issue. In actual fact, we find that in the character of God, there is this wonderful marriage of grace and truth. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shows how that we can be firm to the principles of the truth, and yet at the same time, we can show mercy, unbounding mercy. And throughout the consideration of Hosea, we shall see how God does this, how he is able to maintain his integrity, maintain the principles of the truth, and at the same time show abounding love and mercy. In fact, in chapter 3, we had a glimpse of that, in that Gomer is brought back. Uh, Israel is brought back. As far as we are concerned, we are purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no compromise. God does not compromise with our sin because he gave his son to die for us. He gave his son to die to remove our sins and to make it possible for us to be different people. And so you'll notice in this first verse then, God has a pleading with Israel, a pleading with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no knowledge. They don't understand grace and truth. They don't understand... Side 2 Remarkable marriage of these two important qualities. And where this lack of knowledge is, we find the counter, verse 2, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery, breaking out and blood touching blood. That follows where there is no understanding of the nature and purpose of God with mankind. What I would like to do now is to look through this fourth chapter and see how God pinpoints some of the sins of Israel. Because it is in pinpointing the sins of Israel we will see how God is speaking to us. He's getting through to us and is showing us what are our weaknesses. Verse 4. 
Let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. So God is saying now in this, the situation is such in Israel, because of this swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, because there is no knowledge of God's grace and truth, that it's now too late. Don't go out and speak or strive with the people to try and save them. It's too late. For they are a people as they that strive with the priest. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we are told very clearly in verse 12, that those who would not listen to the priest were in fact to be stoned to death. Those who would not listen to the priest who was the voice of God amongst the people were in fact to be stoned to death. There is, I think, in these days uh, a little word of exhortation here for us because there is a tendency for there to be a rebellion against authority, for there to be a rebellion against uh, the arranging brethren and those who stand for the issues of the truth. There's a tendency not to, to listen to those who speak to us. We are told quite clearly in the New Testament scripture that those who labor in the word of God are worthy of double honor because they are speaking God's words and they are, as it were, God's mouthpiece on our behalf. And not to listen to what is being said is to incur upon ourselves the wrath of God. Verse 7, another weakness. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. As they were increased, so they sinned. A typical weakness here, to enjoy the blessings that God gives to us, but to forget the God who gave the blessings. As they were increased, so they forgot God. And how typical it is in our everyday lives that as we increase in everyday things, there is a tendency to forget God. God, who is the one who blesses us so richly in every way, is the one who tends to be forgotten as we squander those resources and those blessings given to us by him. Verse 8. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on iniquity. These are the priests who now have changed. And you'll notice in verse 9, there shall be like people, like priests. We get what we ask for, brethren and sisters. When we elect a committee, we elect the kind of committee which is going to bring to us a certain kind of fruit at a later stage. And the people here had transformed their priests into becoming people in their own image. Notice it isn't like priests like people, as it ought to be. It is like people like priests. The priests have changed into the image of the people because the people are no longer satisfying the needs of the priests by giving to them their dues. It's a matter of itching ears, as the Apostle Paul uh, refers to it in the New Testament. And now, because they have defiled their priests, in verse 9, we read in verse 12 that the people seek guidance elsewhere. They seek counsel at stocks. They're idols 
their staffs declare unto them, The spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their God. And so in turning away from God, they now seek false gods, and they take this false relationship. And you'll notice in verse 16, they are as a backsliding heifer. There is an awkward grace about a heifer as it walks through the field and tries to walk up a muddy, slippery bank. And all the time this heifer is trying to go forwards up the bank, is slipping backwards. And that is the situation here with regard to Israel. Thinking themselves to be moving forward, thinking themselves to be enlarging, as in the name Jeroboam, they are in fact going backwards as a backsliding heifer. And the basis of this word backsliding here in verse 16 takes us back into Deuteronomy 21 where we read of a rebellious son. And the man who had a rebellious son who would not listen to his word was a man who had to be taken out and stoned to death. That is how serious the situation was. And Israel is like the backsliding heifer. Verse 17 they have joined themselves unto idols. We spoke about this yesterday, that we are either joined unto God, or we are joined unto idols. We decide for ourselves whether we shall be part of the body of Christ, or whether we shall be part of the idols which belong to the world. We can't be in both. We can't be a member of the body of Christ and be committing adultery with harlots at the same time, because that would make the body of Christ be committing adultery. So when we commit sin, we break ourselves away from the body of Christ, and we become joined unto the body of a harlot. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 makes that very clear unto us. Paul emphasizes the whole point. We must either be of Christ, or we will be uh, part of an idol. Now, notice the consequences of the sins of the people. The sins have been outlined in this chapter, but also the consequences of those sins. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We saw that lack of knowledge, lack of grace and truth and understanding of those uh, important principles in the character of God. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. We make our choice. If we choose to be associated with the things of the world and reject God in doing so, he will automatically reject us. We make the choice. Now think of the background story to this in Gomer. She made her choice. She went out in search of other husbands and she left Hosea. She made her choice. There had to be a separation. And God says, I will also forget thee. But I want you to notice in verse 6 another most important principle. I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest unto me. They had been chosen as a nation to be a kingdom of priests. But he goes on to say, I will also forget thy children. I will also forget thy children. 
The lives that we live, brethren and sisters, will create the environment in which our children are brought up. What we decide to do with ourselves and with our lives now will determine the pattern of the lives of our children. Now it may very well be that whilst our children are young we will get ourselves involved in some business venture which takes all our time. We may get ourselves involved in pleasure which takes us away from God. And it may very well be that we will see the error of our ways a little later, several years later, and come back into the truth again in a full-hearted way. But during that period of time, our children will have been set in their ways and we might very well have lost them. They will have come to think that that business venture is our way of life. They would have come to think that to be involved in pleasure is the normal thing to do. And when we turn back to the truth, they will not. They will go straight on doing what we have set them in motion in doing. What we do when we are in family life determines the environment of our children. Will you turn back with me to a verse in the Old Testament scripture which is so often uh, misunderstood? Exodus 34. We have this question in verse 18 of chapter 33. Show me thy glory. Notice, Moses wants to see the glory of God. And we have already seen that the glory of God is analysed into grace and truth. Notice, God says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness, my character. So the glory of God is to do with his character, which is grace and truth. When we come into chapter 34, we have this revelation of God's grace and truth. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. Now we have in those verses a wonderful amalgamation of grace and truth. Firstly, that God is abundant in grace and truth. He will keep mercy for thousands. He will forgive iniquity. He will forgive transgression and sin. And notice the three words are used. Iniquity, transgression and sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Now you say to yourself, but that's not right. Why should God punish the children because of the parents? Well, that is not what the verse is saying. When we look very carefully at verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children means to look over 
to oversee. He will see that the iniquity caused by the parents runs through to their children. He is telling us in this verse that what we do in our lives will affect what our children will do and what they become. And God, who is wise, who is forgiving, who is merciful, will see this happening. And he is warning the people at this time that what you do will affect your children. And he is, in fact, counselling us to go back to seek his mercy, to seek his forgiveness for iniquity, to seek his forgiveness for our transgressions and our sins, that this does not happen in our children. And that is the importance of the message which we have uh, in that chapter in Exodus. And coming back into Hosea now, chapter 4. When God says, I will also forget thy children, he is, of course, telling us that we have brought this upon ourselves. And can I just ask you to look at another reference in Romans? You may have noticed this in the course of our readings. If you didn't, then it's something which is worth underlining. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Here we have the people in verse 21 who, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And if when you come to this word glory, you think always of grace and truth, when they knew God, they knew of the truth. They knew of God's saving grace. They knew of the amalgamation of God's grace and truth. But they did not glorify him as God. Instead, they created their own gods. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of God into the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man. Now notice, three times we read, God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Wherefore, God also gave them up. They've given God up, so he gives them up. And what happens? He gives them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't inflict them. He just withdraws himself from them, and they punish themselves. The corruption of human nature, which is withheld by the presence of God, goes on at a pace when God withdraws himself. God gave them up. They have chosen, as did Gomer, to go their own way, so God lets them go, he gives them up, and this is the consequence. Verse 26, God gave them up unto vile affection. Again, it is the outworking of lust, for even though women did change the natural use of that which is against nature, also the men and so on. And verse 28, the middle of the verse, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. The principle is so clear, brethren. We do not need to be destroyed by anybody else. I don't know why the Jehovah's Witness must find a devil to do all the bad work for us. We can do it for ourselves. And God here is making it very clear that either we will seek his companionship, 
his fellowship, his salvation, or we shall be given up to destroy ourselves. Back into Hosea chapter 4. And so he says in verse 7, as we've seen in Romans, I will change their glory into shame. And all that Israel had been called forward to be and to become a kingdom of priests, the head of all nations, understanding the character of God, now they become a nation of shame. Verse 10, they shall eat and not have enough, they shall commit whoredom, they shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Do you notice how here wantonness is never satisfied? We can never have enough of what the world has to offer. But when we start to make money and want to make money, we have never made enough. We might say to ourselves, if we have a few thousand dollars in the bank, then that is a good insurance. That's all I need. But we get a few thousand dollars in the bank, we must have some more. And we are never satisfied. We never arrive at the situation where we have enough to be confident that we shall be secure. And this verse is teaching us that very thing, that we shall eat and shall not have enough. And it isn't until we learn the peace of the truth that we learn that we can manage on much less than the world requires. You know, in our country, we have gone through a fairly severe recession. And this has made many brethren redundant. And many of us are realizing that this has been a blessing in disguise. That we have been withdrawn from the race to get money and to be somebody. And we have been forced by circumstances to sit back and be quiet and to think. And we have been given a God-given opportunity to spend our time doing the things that really matter. And we find that we don't need half so much money to do it. And there is a great deal more happiness in life in this way. And there is a suggestion, discussing with a brother only this week at the camp, that it would be a good thing if we were to get together and were to decide that we take early retirement, not being concerned about the future as to how we are going to live, but knowing full well that we shall be taken care of if we spend our time doing the right things. If we spend our time doing the wrong things, then we shall be, like verse uh, 10 says, verse um, 12 says, we shall not be satisfied. We shall be eating and never be being filled. It is a good thing to take early retirement and to spend our time wisely uh, in his service. Well, now, very quickly, towards the end of this chapter, the warning to Judah. God says in verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. He's saying, in effect, now you've gone too far down the road. You've gone too far to change. Your bruise now is without healing. It is impossible for my work of salvation to reach you. You have gone in the wrong direction. Therefore, I will not punish your daughters anymore. There will no longer be this remedial affliction. But now he turns to Judah and says, Though Israel play the harlot, 
yet let not Judah offend. Come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth-Avon. Notice how uh, Gilgal, uh, wonderful associations with Gilgal back in Joshua, the book of Joshua. We haven't time to look at those now. Perhaps we might pick that up in the morning. But also how Beth-El, the house of God, becomes Beth-Avon, the house of wickedness. Judah, don't go and be associated with those things, he says, for Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Here there is the principle of disfellowshipping those who do not do the right things and do not serve God in the way that he ought to be served. Ephraim, the ten tribes, are to be disfellowshipped, disowned by the two tribes. God will deal with the ten tribes. He will ultimately bring from them a remnant, but that the two tribes might be preserved in purity. They are counseled by God to separate themselves from the ten tribes and to let them alone. And then we have this dreadful description of the ten tribes. It is a description of a drinking party that has reached its climax. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Their rulers with shame do love give ye. We have the picture here, as other versions paint it, of the end of the party when the drink has gone flat. It's turned sour. When all the sins of the flesh of lust have been experienced. And there is nothing left but the heartache and the sorrow and the flatness of the feeling with the deadness of the party that is over. Israel is described in those terms. Israel has tried all these things and has come to the bitter end. There is no joy, there is no pleasure in liquor, in alcohol. There is no lasting pleasure in these physical relationships. There is no lasting pleasure or substance in being involved with idols. And so Ephraim is counseled to leave them alone. And in that counsel we have ourselves a very strong word of exhortation to be separate from the world which can offer nothing to us which is of lasting or of substance. <coughs> God willing we will pick up tomorrow just something on Gilgal verse 15 and something on verse 19 which takes us in fact into the book of Zechariah. But that for tomorrow. Thank you.